0: I'm Jill Martin, the host of the Morning Bell podcast. We're doing another interview in this episode, this time with graphic and game designer John Harper. We chat about the origins of role-playing games, and John's approach to design. It's a great time, and I loved chatting with John, hearing his insights and wisdom on a topic he knows quite well. As always, if you have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to contact me on my email mailbox at thepenofjoel.com thanks we hope you enjoyed listening hello and welcome to the morning bell podcast today is another interview focused podcast and i believe we've got quite a special guest lined up for you listeners john welcome to the show
1: thanks for having me it's great to be here
0: fantastic to have you so john for our listeners that don't already know about you, um, why don't you tell us a bit about you? You know, um, wh- Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, I am a game designer, uh, primarily. Um, I do tabletop role-playing games, which I'm sure we will talk about at length here in this <laughs> interview, so I won't, I won't go into that now. Um, I had a career as a graphic designer for many years, and now I've switched over to doing Game design and, and publishing is my main, my main gig now, uh, which is, is a, it, in, in this age, it means I'm a kind of a one man shop. I do, I do marketing and web stuff and the game design and the graphics and layout and all of that stuff, uh, <laughs> so, which is kind of the reason why I do it. I, I like, I like taking on all those roles, wearing all those different hats and, uh, trying to never have a boring day. I can always do some art or do some writing or whatever, run a small business, uh, it's good. It's good. It's. I'm. I feel mm. very fortunate to be alive in a time where that's a very viable uh, career choice to have. To be. To be a, an independent artist is a is a very awesome thing.
0: So you basically keep that creative well topped up top by you know getting a little bit of writing, getting a little bit of art, and then
1: you know you're good. It's yeah. It's good for me. my I, I tend to uh, flit around mm. um, my creative process. And sticking to one thing can be can be tricky for me. So it's good to <laughs> have all those different. All those different buckets to fill
0: yeah fantastic um so for our listeners um we've we've done this kind of thing uh, before but we really wanted to bring you guys uh, another episode where we dig into a niche um that doesn't really get talked about on the literary circuit very much um and i think that's a shame i think it it needs to be talked about because the more you talk about stuff the more people get involved in it and you know that's great for everyone Um, so we wanted to bring, uh, John on and have a chat about pen and paper games. It's something that's close to my heart. Um, even though I work more in the traditional, um, game writing sector, it's something that I've always kind of been interested in, in, in recent years. It's, um, it's gotten more curious to me, I suppose. Um, so, so let's do this terrible thing, John, that people do when, when they're not really interested in your career, or um, you're you're at a, a club or you're at a cafe, and they're like, "So what do you do?" Um, mm-hmm. And then you mm-hmm. and you say pen and paper games, and uh, and they and they sort of look at you quizzically, you know, with one eyebrow <laughs> raised, and say, "You know, what's that all about? What what's your answer, John?"
1: Yeah, I I have a two stage process. I, if it's a very casual all right. meeting, I'll I'll sometimes say I do graphic design and writing, and if they go. <laughs> And they sort of nod and they don't ask any questions, yeah. then we can leave it there. Uh, and if they do ask, then I might mention um, game design and tabletop. Mm-hmm. If they don't ask more questions, we can leave it there. And, <laughs> and then if they really care, yeah. uh, I can describe that. So, yeah, um, it's uh, Dungeons and Dragons is the is the the, the, the title that most people are familiar Touched with. Then, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it, it was the first arguably uh, and has permeated popular culture. Uh, so most people now in 2017 when you say Dungeons and Dragons they have some concept of what you mean yeah. uh, Whether or not it's accurate. Uh, they they can at least understand this idea that oh It has something to do with fantasy and you you roll dice or something. Uh, this kind of vague notion mm. um, But really uh, what I do at, in terms of being a game designer for tabletop is the w- the way I think of tabletop play um, Pen and paper RPGs, or or whatever you want to call them, um, my friend Vincent Baker put it really well in one of his games, where he said, uh, "Gaming is a conversation, and mm-hmm. we can have a conversation about anything. Um, so the rules of the game sort of funnel us in a particular direction. They they guide our conversation towards certain topics, like being adventurers going into dungeons, or mm-hmm. being pilots in World War II." Uh, or or whatever the topic is, the rules help us navigate that conversation. Um, but really, at its heart, if you 've been at a party and you 've talked to someone about whatever the the topic of the day, um, mm-hmm. having that back and forth conversation where you 're sort of taking turns talking and you 're leading each other and asking questions and digging into a topic uh, that's that 's essentially what tabletop play is focused on, and I think it's it's viewed uh, in the in the public consciousness more as more gamey. There's a lot of dice and numbers and rules and in uh, yeah. that board game, the board game style, because there are a lot of trappings of the games that look like board games with lots of counters and tokens and, and math and stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but if you can have a conversation about something, you can play an RPG pretty much. Uh, so I, that's, I usually try to describe it that way, that it's it's my job as, a, as the game designer to inspire a group of people to have a conversation about a particular thing. And then when they do that, uh, to create some boundaries around what they're talking about and to create some mechanics that will push and pull on that discussion, Mm -hmm. uh, introduce uh, conflict and resolve the conflict and move the conversation on to the next stage.
0: Awesome. Fantastic.
1: Um,
0: Well, well, that's a hell of an introduction. Uh, I'm (laughs) glad I asked the question. Uh, (laughs) So tell us, you know about your your kind of personal history with pen and paper games. Is that something that, you know, g- came to you young or did you just mm-hmm. um your career?
1: Yeah, I uh I'm kind of the second generation, I guess, you could look at it that way. Um, I first I saw my first game book, D&D book my cousin had some. I think I was mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe 6 or something. Um so this would have been I don't know maybe 1979 1978 something like mm-hmm. that and um, it was fairly new the hobby was was fairly new at that point point. Um, 76 77 is when the books started to be published the hobby had been going for a while before that and so the people that were playing at that time were all adults were in their 30s 40s um, 20s 30s 40s so as a little kid you know they weren't inviting me over to play games with them mm, uh, yeah so There was already already this very active hobby culture of tabletop play, Um, not just D&D, but all kinds of Mm -hmm. weird. Um, But because I wasn't friends with these adults who were playing it, my only access at the time was was through these books, these sort of hand-me-down books. So I started running games for my friends. I think I was around 10 or so, Um, but we had no uh, contact with the hobby at large. So we hadn't Mm -hmm. I had never played one of these games or seen it done. Uh, I just had the book, and so I had to puzzle out. Back back then, the books <laughs> were kind of reference materials first and foremost. They weren't necessarily yeah. teach, teaching books, um, but we were very enthusiastic, and we loved pictures of dragons and things. So we uh, made up our own mechanics where we needed to and pulled <laughs> through. And that, for some reason, that generation really latched onto gaming, and so mm. people of my age. Um, Grew up to love RPGs, but we had this disconnect. There was this oral tradition basically before us that we didn't have access to mm. And we did our own Second wave of gaming based on these books and by piecing together our own styles and it took a long time it was another 20 years or so before I Went back to the roots of what those guys were doing when I was a kid and learned how they were really playing the games Yeah, uh, and that was really interesting to discover like how we created these this other hobby uh in a way mm. uh, but uh yeah that be, because of my my generation i i was very fortunate i had these books to start with and then very soon after that in the early 80s and and all the 90s um there was a huge boom in game publishing the mm. uh, tsr and wizards of the coast and uh, white wolf and uh, west end games making the star wars rpg which is a big license uh, property we were all huge star wars fans so we played that um, uh, but we, we were very lucky to have a game store boom. The comic book store boom was happening. Um, so we had a lot of access to materials, to shiny new products, and it really kept the momentum going. Uh, it wasn't just this sort of brief, um, flash in the pan. And I yeah. think the, the satanic panic in the eighties in America, uh, mm-hmm. where, some groups decided that role playing games were evil that helped fuel the popularity as well because yeah. there was a lot of a lot of free advertising for, yeah. for role playing yeah. um, so yeah we uh we played all through our teens and through high school and and college and for me, it was always a creative act first and foremost yeah. i I liked to make the maps and yeah. uh, create rules and draw everything and write everything and 50% of the fun for me was was being a maker of the mm-hmm. thing. Uh, so it made sense for me to transition into into making products in that space uh, later on. Yeah, my my very first experiences, is just for anyone out there listening who mm-hmm. knows about these games. Uh, I didn't start with D&D. Technically, I played Gamma World um, That's my first game, which is a weird science fiction mm-hmm. post apocalypse uh, radiation mutation kind of game with giant cockroaches and things. <laughs> And then the uh, the Star Wars RPG was big, uh, and then I I played D and D much later on, uh, as a, in high school. So have,
0: have you gone back and played Gamma World today? And you're like, wow, that aged really well, or man, that <laughs> aged really badly.
1: <laughs> yeah, it it's aged okay. Um, yeah. I really I love to go back to that period, especially the late '70s and early '80s mm-hmm. games. Um, there's an economy of writing to those games that's really impressive to me now as a designer. I go back yeah. and look basic D and D, the Tom Moldvay's edition, and the all, the entire rules text fits in I don't know like 30 pages or something. Yeah, uh, and it it's terse and to the point and evocative and it, it's just this great feat of deft uh, brevity that mm. I aspire to now myself. I want. I want to recapture that and he had the benefit of writing for people who already knew the game, who already yeah. knew what D&D was, but um yeah, so he, he didn't of... need
0: to explain what it was and then go into it again, right? Which Not you a... kind of have to do these days.
1: Kind of. Yeah, he mm-hmm. he does explain what it is, but he does it in this very straightforward way. I think he all right. describes all of gaming in a paragraph at the beginning of the text.
0: <laughs> that takes some skill, dude.
1: It does, yeah, and and it it's not necessarily the right answer for every reader, right? Some people need a different type of sure. approach to that. Um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of those original games have aged very, very well. Um, and, honestly, some of the games that came out after that, that sort of third, second, third generation texts, have not aged as well. The uh, awkward strange. teenage period. Yeah, I think, yeah, you could call <laughs> it that. Yeah, there's a sophomore slump a bit there. Uh, <laughs> Fantastic. But, uh, it, in the early 2000s, there was a, a website called The Forge, which mm. uh, was a kind of think tank for gaming, um, game design, gameplay. Uh, we used to call it back then, it was the, it was the only sort of master's level course available in, in tabletop game design. You had to just go to this forum and have yeah. a thousand conversations. Um, and in doing that, we discovered that uh, a lot of those old books really knew what they were doing, and we had a lot to learn from from the origins of the hobby, I feel like I've wandered far away from your question. Oh no, <laughs>
0: that's fine. I'm I'm sitting here enthralled and just getting in the soaking in the wisdom, John. Um, yeah. So you, you know, you you mentioned you know going back to the the origins and, and researching that. I'm I'm curious. That's a hell of a segue. But um, the those origins, I guess, for me anyway, um, on a visual aspect initially when I was getting into it. Um, And looking at first edition D &D and all that kind of stuff like the art um the style they were going for it seemed very classic tolkien-esque fantasy right like Mm -hmm. do you think a lot of that kind of fiction you know started started this this idea of like where do you think that that origin that kernel of an idea came from do you think it came from fantasy uh, specifically speculative fiction in general um, and then yeah. we can dovetail off that, and you know, you can talk about what about you, right? Like, you know, moving on, what a, the fiction that you now digest.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, the the origins are interesting. I'll try to be brief. It, it, they they came out of uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, who mm-hmm. who are these sort of official creators of the of D anD. d They were big war game guys, uh, hobbyists, they played uh, a lot of the the tabletop, um, war games like Gettysburg and, um, Mm -hmm. Avalon stuff where you're, you're moving little miniatures around the map with cannons and, and ranks of infantry and that sort of stuff. Um, and some of those games had campaign rules where you would play through a whole, the, the, the winter campaign of Napoleon, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But, uh, for the most part, they were skirmishes and they both kind of got it into their heads. Um, and and people who know the true history here, I'm paraphrasing all of this uh and really compacting <laughs> everything. So don't don't hate on me too much. Uh, they but they both got it in their heads that it'd be interesting to have um named individual characters. So that these these miniatures rather than being faceless inventory units, yeah. Um, what if what if they were what if this was Frodo and what if this was Gandalf and what if mm. this was was Aragorn? Um and there were some hobbyist um Miniature making companies back then they were making little pewter figurines of wizards and and things
0: yeah
1: And so they thought well, we could use these we could use these little pewter figurines. We like to paint Miniatures we could have little maps uh, Where these people go on adventures and we could have a map of the mines of Moria and they could they could go in and have torches and and goblins and things Mm -hmm. Uh, and So they they grew out of this wargaming mentality and the early forms of DD are very much a game of survival a game of pitting your wits mm-hmm. against this dangerous environment and monsters um, storytelling is a byproduct of those games and i think a lot of good rpgs treat the fiction like that the, the, that Comes you're not of it yeah yeah the, the fiction is a is a thing that must happen you're there's always going to be a story as soon as you have a character in motion mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need to Craft what the story is going to be, you know, first they go here then they go there then they meet the bad guy Then he betrays them blah blah blah. blah. Yeah, yeah, you don't really need to map all that out ahead of time You can create some locations and some interesting uh, adversaries and let the story kind of flow out of that so that the the Early parts of the hobby being more of a war game more gamey more about character survival mm. and facing challenges um, led into that second generation Uh that was more focused on storytelling, games like Vampire, um, yeah. Yeah. that really tried to bring the cinematic sensibility, rising action and mm-hmm. the hero's journey and some of these concepts into um, into gaming. But at the beginning, uh, I think one of the things you're asking about is the fictional touchstones. Mm. Obviously, Tolkien was a big influence. Um, fortunately, uh, Gary Gygax in um, one of the original d books, he had an appendix in the back called Appendix N. Mm. Uh, where he lists all the books you ought to read if you're into, <laughs> Avengers and Dragons*.
0: Yeah,
1: and, and um, they're all of a type, but there's some, in there that are a little surprising. He, he was a big fan of Lord Dunsany, um, and of course, right, of course, loved, yeah. um, Robert Howard's Conan books were, were of course. really big. Um, Fritz Leiber, I think, it, for me is the biggest touchstone for that mm-hmm. stuff. He creates a kind of, uh, roguish action. Um, swashbuckling feel to things that that is uh, great for D and D. Plus the strange Lovecraftian kind of um, monsters and and magic and forgotten deities and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, Fred Saberhagen's work. Um, uh, maybe most important of all of these, even more than Tolkien, I would say, is Jack Vance. Um, Jack Vance wrote yeah. uh, Dying Earth and um, Eyes of the Overworld, and he he had a very uh, Baroque style, mm. um, in, in, in the way he, that he wrote and in the settings that he created and D and D, even though it has the trappings of Tolkien, it has wizards and, and pots yeah. and, and rangers. Um, it, it's world is this strange nonsense world with huge underground complexes filled with traps and monsters that you can have conversations with and, uh, <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. It, it, not not so much the the um, it's sort like of weird match. Tolkien at that stage. <laughs> it's weird, yeah. It's weird Tolkien. It's like a mashup between yeah. Vance and, Tolkien and Lovecraft, I feel, and it's it, it's it's bones. An
0: unholy um, alliance, if ever there was one.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's funny too because now that weird melange that that they made in D D has become its own genre. Kind yeah. of you can you can look at at D and D as a fantasy genre mm-hmm. practically. Um and I think a lot of modern fantasy authors are influenced almost more from D and D than they are from things that that inspired it. Yeah, uh, the the tropes of that the the dwarf and his axe, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily coming from Tolkien, but more coming from World of Warcraft, uh, which is drawing directly from mm-hmm. from D. Interesting. Uh, it, and for me, I yeah. I was a big fan of Jack Vance. Um, right. So that that drew me in, and um, I was always in love with his his writing style and but also cormac mccarthy and mm-hmm. uh, Stephen bruce uh, and raymond chandler who all are a more economical in their in their yeah. um writing style i'm seeing a trend <laughs> yeah yeah and robert howard too like the, this this more direct um less flowery so kind he, of approach so
0: he has he is an honest and this is coming from a true fan um of the of the genre your favorite Robert E. Howard uh, character, and for all my listeners that are now groaning that Joel is not talking about Robert E. Howard again, <laughs> this will be brief,
1: I, I swear. But, uh, favorite Robert E. Howard character, I have to ask. Well, I mean, I, for me, it has to be Conan. Uh, he's <laughs> uh, he was my first, and um, there's something really amazing about that character that mm. I be- because of the films and because of the general tropiness of the dumb barbarian character, I love Conan even more because he is very much not that. Yeah, He is, he is a spy scoundrel um, that created the trope but also really subverts that trope. Mm-hmm. Uh and he's way more interesting than than the the hulking muscle man that we think of um, when we think of the the barbarian adventurer. So yeah, I I will always I will always love Conan the most. But it's a hard choice. There's a lot of good characters in Howard. Uh, <laughs> good answer. Who's, 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 <laughs> here, who's yours? Who's, who who would you? Uh again, my list isn't growing, but
0: Solomon Kane is. Um... Of course,
1: I I had a feeling you were gonna say that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm curious. Why why why
1: why were you suspecting that? Um, I a, a lot of people that I know who love Howard. That that is their that's their touchstone with Howard Kane. Awesome Kane. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. extremely interesting and kind of awful character. Yeah, uh, just the worst. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah,
0: just the absolute worst. All right, so yeah, you, um, it it's curious to see that mashup of fiction. Um, but now let's go into what the product of some of that might be, right? Um, so so talk us about talk to us about Blaze in the Dark. Um, my first interaction was with, uh, with this was, um, I saw it on Twitter, um, somebody had tweeted out, uh, there's an RPG, uh, which is all about stabbing people in a steampunk world. And I was like, <laughs> say again? <laughs> and you know, I, I went to your Kickstarter page, and I saw it, and I, I fell in love with what I saw. Um, and I think a lot of people did. It was an incredibly successful um, Kickstarter, so congrats on that. Um, and the book was recently published as well. So it's a it's a long question so let's start right at right at the beginning um what was that origin you know
1: what was your kernel
0: for for blades and what how did it grow from there
1: um it started with a fairly traditional uh dungeons and dragons game i mm-hmm. I, I was working at a creative agency here in seattle and um the D resurgence tabletop resurgence was happening in the popular culture and uh my friends at work uh, kind of cornered me and said, hey, you do that stuff, Make do that for us, Play, run a game for us.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: so I did, and I thought, well, let's just start, let's start out with the old Tom Moldvay, uh, basic yeah. D&D, that very economical book that I was talking about before. Um, very simple, straightforward, and as often happens when you when you do that with a bunch of creative people, they they take the kernels of that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: of being adventurers, and all of a sudden you have, political maneuvering inside a thieves (laughs) guild and who's right whom and and societies and and a demon cult that is is trying to come back and all these Mm. things so uh we we generated a bunch of great fiction out of that and it came to an end when um two of the characters basically destroyed the world they they did a thing (laughs) that destroyed the the world completely they uh destroyed the gates to the underworld and all the ghosts Mm. and that that of all the dead from before in, in the in the Eons of our setting were, were unleashed on the world, and the sun was blotted out, and uh, it was that cataclysmic, cataclysmic end to our setting. We, it was the finale of our series, you know. Um, so that was really fun and totally unplanned. Uh, the two characters that mm. the player did it, did it on their own without. I, it wasn't my idea. Yeah, it's uh, the GM. But after we finished that, I I sent an email and said, Hey, do you guys want to play another series? And they said yes. And I said, Well, do you want to play during in the same setting, you want to play during this, this sort of apocalypse.
0: Mm.
1: It's happening. Um, Or maybe we could just fast forward like a thousand years and play in the world that survives that, uh, whatever's left. Um, And they said, let's do that. Let's do a thousand years in the future. So I thought, well, that's, you know, let's, let's call it. We're going from around the year 900, maybe to 1890 ish. And Mm. that immediately made me think of, of the Victorian era and, the industrial revolution and so that led to thoughts around what you know what does a fantasy world look like when it has its industrial revolution much later after this horrible uh, cataclysm that has occurred mm. uh and conveniently enough um around the same time uh harvey smith uh brilliant video game designer um he created uh Deus Ex x and the thief series of video games um they were working on a, a project called Dishonored, which was this fantasy industrial age uh, video game.
0: From Arcane, yeah.
1: Yeah, from Arcane, exactly. Um, and so I looked at some of the early art for it and some of the teasers and mm-hmm. was hugely inspired. Like, Oh, this is exactly what I'm thinking. It's it's mm-hmm. sort of pseudo-steampunky, but not really. Uh, it's... Whale it's punk. This... <laughs> yeah, yeah, whale punk is what they said <laughs> that I... Um, so it made uh, the setup for our game really easy. I could show people concept art from Dishonored and they went, oh, yeah, yeah I get it. I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started playing that and pretty, pretty soon it, it, in that process, it, it clicked that this, there was something there. That, this
0: is the thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That the idea of this kind of industrial fantasy, which we came to call it, um, was something that people could relate to. Um, there were a lot of touchstones for it in fiction. Uh, Peaky Blinders mm-hmm. and Gangs of New York, and um, it was in the zeitgeist. There was this thing yeah. happening. Uh, uh, the Lies of Locke Lamora, Scott Lynch's mm-hmm. um, books. Uh, we were all kind of riffing on this same concept. So I thought this is a, this should be a product. I should I should pursue this, mm-hmm. um, and it came together from there Mo- mostly through play. We we played for a couple years uh, and built this setting of. Dusk of All, this city was surrounded by lightning barriers to keep the ghosts out, and Mm -hmm. uh, slowly built up some lore and some factions of criminal groups and the cops and everything, um, until it became something that that was ready for publication. Um, But uh, my my main touchstone Mm -hmm. in terms of writers for this, um, Harvey's work on Thief and Dishonored, especially, is huge. But also Stephen Bruce. Uh, the fantasy author, he has a series of books about this character named Vlad Taltosh, who's a um, kind of assassin rogue scoundrel guy in in a city uh, who's uh, dealing with magic and demons and, and stuff. Um, but it, it takes it the angle that he takes is this sort of criminal organization angle. The organized crime right. concepts of turf and bosses and uh, bribery and more, not quite uh, crime fiction per se, but definitely more on the side of something like Raymond Chandler than mm-hmm. than on, uh, say, Tolkien. Um, very gritty, um, urban fantasy kind of stuff. Interesting. And that's always my touchstone. There is treating the fantasy elements as something um, uh, just separate from the PCs. The characters are just ordinary people. They're not. Mm-hmm. They're not immortals or or wizards or elves or anything. They're ordinary people caught up in all of this stuff. And we follow them to see what they would do. What? What? They're not legendary heroes. They're just ordinary people trying to make their way in this crazy, crazy setting.
0: Mm.
1: And that's what Blades in the Dark, the, the game, tries to do. It tries to give you this somewhat fantastic setting uh, but then create characters that are more like real people, that act more like real people.
0: Yeah. Um so you you've mentioned some of those influences and so I'm guessing this will have a little bit to do with the next question which is more about you know what was the process of actually you know digging your teeth into it and um and writing it you know what what is actually the writing process for a pen and paper game. You know that's yeah. something not everyone I guess <laughs> uh has access to, right? Nobody's written a pen and paper game in the morning tea, not as far as I know. Um <laughs> but,
1: but I think I can think of a couple, but, they're pretty <laughs> um, it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, I, my background is not so much, I, I, I wrote fiction, uh, mm-hmm. and, and some sort of novella and short story stuff. Uh, I went to, I went to school for, for, mm-hmm. uh, as an English major, but, um, I, I never thought of myself as a writer first and foremost. Um, but still the, the, it's still, a, it's a very different process than mm-hmm. writing a story. Uh, yeah. Some of the setup is similar, you know, if you're if you're creating any any kind of fiction, I think you need to understand the world. Uh, You need to have it in your head so that you have something to say about that world, whether it's 1920s Poland or or the moon colony in the year 3000 or whatever it is. uh, You're you're seeding your brain with these bits uh, of imagery and concepts and names and people situations. Mm. Um, that you can sift through to find, uh, interesting stories to write. And that world building part, I think is very similar between say a fantasy novelist and a, yeah. and a tabletop game designer. Um, but the writing process is, is quite different. It's the game design phase is di- very distinct from the writing phase. Um, mm-hmm. uh, game design phase is all about interface. You're, mm-hmm. you're thinking about what, Cats, what are the players yeah. need to know, mm-hmm. um, how much information can you give them so they're not overwhelmed, but they have enough I- I- interesting things to say? Um, what kind of situations are going to inspire them to take action and to pursue uh, interesting parts of this conversation? And all of that can be done in a very note-taking kind of um, diagrammatic way for me. I, I I make little notes, I draw flowcharts, mm-hmm. I connect everything with lines and boxes and kind of organize uh the process of play and as a graphic designer everything kind of comes out for me as the the pieces of paper and the tables and the the things that players are going to use while they're playing the map of the city and uh, the sheet where they write all this stuff down about their character what should that look like Mm -hmm. um all of that needs to be evocative and and interesting so i start that's where i usually start but then after all of that after a couple years of doing that Mm -hmm. at the day at some point you have to sit down and write this book (laughs) yeah and it's a separate project um, because the book is both the world building kind of formalized um, a description of the setting in some form uh, and the procedures of play the kind of um, guide to how to play this game the rules of Mm. of play Um, and the most important thing to me is the component of the book that makes the reader want to do the activity, the inspirational um, component. And for me, I want to, I want that to be present in every aspect of the book, every page, whether, whatever I'm talking about, whether it's some minutia of the rules or some detail of the setting, uh, it, it should be presented in a way that makes the reader want to go and make their own fiction. Um, and that's, that's kind of how I see my role as, a tabletop designer is I'm not so much there to give you an interesting thing to sit and read uh, as a reader, but more to give you something that is going to create an itch in the back of your brain. It's going to make Wait a minute. No, 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 no. I I. Oh, OK, I could do this with that and I could mm. go here. I could. Oh, that's an interesting faction. If I made a character that was part of that faction, I, this is what I would do if I was part of that group. Yeah,
0: Um.
1: Know. it's. It's curious
0: you mentioned like the the writing of the book and you know the I guess the um, the digestion of your own thoughts and processes eventually coming through in, 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 in the writing of it in the end. Um, I'm curious you mentioned the world and you know, coming up with the ideas of the world. and it just it strikes me that I imagine, you know, did this happen like when you were writing, you know, the, when you're writing it down, really, just putting your thoughts onto, onto paper, was there a moment when you were like, ah, this just wouldn't happen in this world, you know? Like, people wouldn't make a role like this, or a character wouldn't be forced to do... You know, it just doesn't fit in the fiction of the world. Was that something that
1: happened? Yeah, definitely. Mm. Uh, and it's it, it's an important distinction to make, because at the table with your friends when you're playing... You're only beholden to them. Yeah. Uh, Well, all that matters really is that we're having a good time. We're exploring something we want to explore. uh, We're engaged. We're having fun. Mm. Um, And so, things that are off, that are that would be uh, that wouldn't fit um, in the in a canonical sense. You know, that a a certain tribe of elves or something shouldn't have this thing that they have, Um, or in a or in a fictional tone sense, Mm -hmm. if we thought that we were doing something more adventurous and it's trying to lean into this kind of horror element. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what we want to do as players. Then we can do it. That's fine. Uh, But when you're presenting the kind of baseline of the setting and the, Mm -hmm. and the game and the style, um, yeah, those things do need to be called. There needs to be a kind of in in the video game industry. They use this term that I love called the razor. Mm. uh, Where You can't put everything in your game. So you have, um, you have this razor that is ma- what makes the cut essentially mm-hmm. and that 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 is a multi-phase process it happened during playtesting and then yeah like you said there there were times when i had stuff in the text where when i'm writing the final draft i thought no actually this is wrong this is not yeah. it shouldn't be there or this other thing has the wrong tone it's pushing into this into the wrong genre space sort of um or there's a better way to present this element that will Make it quicker for the reader to pick up on it, you know, some trapping of their costume or the name of the group Mm. is going to spark something better in the in the in the reader's mind that will set them down the right path. Instead of thinking of them as knights, they're going to think of them more as these Pony Express outriders. That's Mm. more what, you know, so a little twist of wording here and there to kind of do that. But but really, it's it's not so much there to make sure things turn out correctly Mm. uh, because once it's in the hand of the group, like I said, it's for them to use however they want. Uh, it's more like creating this, this baseline, this foundation that they can build. on. yeah, that, that, that doesn't feel arbitrary or, or contrived. It Mm. feels, it feels like things fit uh, together because what we're really doing is just talking about an imaginary place and Mm. anything that interrupts our suspension of disbelief can make the, that house of cards kind of, tumble down
0: yeah uh, yeah
1: so the the stronger the the more fit the bricks are of that foundation um the easier it is for the people later at their own game table to riff and to uh feel like they have a, a stable place to create their own fiction from
0: um with the writing of blades this is something that i've kind of noticed with a lot of um pen and paper games is that i think Writers take a lot of time um, to figure out the artistry of how the how the prose of the the book sort of fits. You know, um, there's a lot of skill that I've noticed in the writing of it. I, I was looking through a rule set um, a year or two back, and I was running a game for a friend, um, looking through Dogs in the Vineyard, and I forget the name mm-hmm. of the 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 writer. Um,
1: it's Vincent Baker.
0: Vincent Baker, um, yeah. and it was just. It, it's the kind of fiction that I could read, you know what I mean? It's, it's, um, I picked it up, I started reading it, and I forgot to a certain extent that I was reading rules. Um, yeah. and, and I was looking through um, Blades um, a couple weeks ago as well, um, and there's a, there's a flow to the, to the narrative of the rules. Do you do that deliberately? Is that a, a kind of co- conscious decision of, I'm writing a kind of story for the players... Well, not, not a linear story per se, but like a story of the rules. Or is it just something that just comes out naturally?
1: It's definitely a conscious decision. And uh, Vincent's a great example. He, in his, in Dogs in the Vineyard and in his game of Apocalypse World, um, in all of his game texts, actually, uh,
0: mm.
1: he o- often takes on a particular voice uh, for the book that isn't his sort of rules writer voice. It's a, yeah. it's a point of view. The dogs in the vineyard voice dogs in the vineyard for those who don't know is a, a role playing game about pre-state, mm-hmm. uh, Utah in the United States and this, uh, religious group, um, and the, the, out on the frontier trying to, trying to create, um, a space for them, the, a space where they can practice their religion in peace. Um, and you play these young people who are kind of the, um, the watchdogs of the faith—they—they mm-hmm. they ride from town, deliver mail, and um, baptize babies, and, and settle uh, family disputes and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So Vincent another fan of, of Cormac McCarthy, he—he uh, he read *Blood Meridian* and um, got that voice in his head. And and the rules text of *Dogs in the Vineyard* has this voice to it. If you feel like you're thrown back into, into the West, not in a in a vernacular way. There's not a lot of jargon yeah. from that or something but just in the style of the presentation it feels that yeah. i would argue that book is probably the most well-written game book in terms mm. of that that aspect it's easy to read and it just the the feel of that time and place gets into your bones when you yep. read it absolutely uh, it's a beautiful piece of work dogs in the vineyard highly recommended um, for me though i i take a different approach i try to cultivate a voice that's more myself mm-hmm. um at, in the way that I would explain things. If we were sitting across the table together, I want to kind of guide you through what the game is and point out what I think is cool about it. But at a, at a remove, not, not from with a voice within the setting itself, but more of the voice of someone who's excited about that stuff and wants to, wants to show you why it's cool. Mm. Uh, Those are very, very conscious choices. And each game has different needs. Uh, Some games demand a very uh, distinct voice and some games Mm -hmm. demand a neutral voice. And as a designer, that's something you have to navigate and and figure out for yourself. And I I assume uh, for writers, for novelists and that kind of thing, that that choice has got to be maddening, right? You have to (laughs) decide. I'm I'm telling this story, but what voice do I tell it? If you're not writing a first-person narrative – how do you how do you even get there how do you build your voice that's a that's a really it's tough yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the nightmares um <laughs> it's it's curious and i could i could go on with this uh, with you forever because i'm, I'm super interested in uh, creative process in general but specifically within something like this it's it's really interesting um but we we'll we'll keep going um i'm i'm interested in Seeing uh, in, in your opinion you know you've, you've, you've been involved in this industry for a while. this is not your first um, game that you've worked on uh, pen and paper game and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's this for me anyway, there seems to be a bit of a resurgence right in the last couple of years um, that seems to be uh, uh, brought up. Um, a lot more. Like I, I, I've been hearing people talking about um, pen and paper games that I wouldn't assume naturally would have played them, and and you know it's becoming more mainstream. If I use that word, um, mm-hmm. why do you think that is, and where do you think that's going?
1: That's a good question. Um, there have been a few sort of mini uh, booms mm-hmm. um, in the '80s and '90s. There was The explosion of lots of different games and lots of supplements and the retail game store and comic book store um, industry was doing really well. Uh, And so you could fill up shelves with a million books of here's a book of magic swords or whatever, and then Mm. they would sell. Uh, Then that that brick and mortar store situation for comics and, and for games started to dwindle. Um, and then around in the two thousands, there was another kind of boom or even a little before that, mm-hmm. um, 90, 97, or 96, 97 is when I, I first got into sort of digital releasing of stuff, um, uh, just putting stuff up on a website and that kind of thing. And then PDF started to come in. Um, and around 2000, it really took off there. And there was a, there was a digital boom there where lots of people who had never released games before because they didn't want to put a second mortgage on their house to print a bunch of books,
0: uh,
1: all of a sudden they could, they could release digitally.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, So we got a lot of innovation, a lot of resurgence, um, within the hobby at that time. Um, not so much in in an evangelical way, but just within the people who were already gamers, there was Mm. this giant boom of all kinds of new games, little mini games that were only a page long or, um, games that were, um, In Strange formats uh, that you couldn't do in a book, uh, but you could do digitally Um, so That has continued since then Mm -hmm. Um, See self-publishing and PDF and and web publishing and stuff has only gotten better and better and better Yeah, and now we're in this kind of patreon age where um, It makes a lot of sense as to be an independent creator and to actually try expect to make a living at it rather than just uh, Sort of putting everything out there for free. Yeah, during all of that, though, I, one thing I, I think is a contributor here mm. to to the Because the, the thing you're talking about, I think is more of a resurgence in popular culture like outside yeah. the hobby.
0: Yeah
1: uh, And I this is just a theory. I don't really know but I suspect that people of my generation who Started doing this as kids when it was just in someone's basement um, with an old D&D book are of an age now where they are the president of a media company so they're running cartoon network. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they make, show, they're making adventure time with Pendleton Ward mm-hmm. and, um, they're deciding Vin Diesel is like deciding what movies to make. Uh, he's a huge team yeah. nerd. And so Warner brothers will give him a hundred million dollars to make the last witch hunter, which is about his D character. You know, yeah. it's easy. Um, but the, the former generation of executives and people with the, with the money, um, have been replaced by my generation mm. uh, and they all love role-playing games or not all, but a bunch of them do. Um, and now they're able to make these, these shows and, and bits of media that really draw from that. Well, either indirectly like adventure time and that kind of stuff or Steven universe um, or directly that where they're doing shows about role-playing games yeah. um, and coming out of all that, we can't ignore uh, the geek and sundry, the, this, this mm-hmm. media uh, which partnered with YouTube, Felicia Day and, and Will Whedon, kind of the, the heads of that. Um, and they really wanted to promote gaming as as one of its main thrusts. And so once they partnered with YouTube, um, that helped expose people to it in, in a much bigger way. And the behemoth that's come out of that uh, is a show called Critical Role, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a show where a bunch of voice actors, very talented Hollywood voice actors, played Dungeons and Dragons, uh, on camera, um, and another show, which I'm a part of called Roleplay, R-O-L-L-P-L-A-Y, uh, which is the same thing, uh, that's created this whole secondary culture where there's an audience of people who are interested in watching actors perform Dungeons and Dragons, and the, the audience members themselves are not gamers necessarily.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, they're tuning in to watch, uh, soap yeah. opera, you know, yeah. they, <laughs> They want to know what happens to this character next week Uh, and the medium of the thing is Gaming instead of film or television Mm.
0: Uh,
1: and I Again, I suspect but I can't prove I I think there's something magical that happens in this medium Um, Especially among the nerd culture people who love reading in particular.
0: Yeah
1: Uh, When you watch a TV or TV show or film it's very passive, right? You consume the mm-hmm. media, um, but when you read a book, uh, the the story plays out inside your mind, right? You, it's all happening on the stage of your imagination, and so it feels way more active. You're much more involved. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And, and the presentation of, of role playing games on Twitch and on YouTube straddles this this beautiful space where. You, there's a visual performance, there's maps and there's dice rolling and there's people talking and um, doing funny voices, but also all of the action of the show, what the characters are doing, uh, happens inside that imagination mm. space that happens like when you're reading a book. So you get this really interesting experience of something that's like watching TV but is also like reading. Um, and I, I feel like that has contributed to this this success of um, the resurgence of tabletop games is somehow acknowledging mm. this is it's like nothing else. It's this unique um, space just as a viewer, even if you're not playing the games. Um, there's something that you can get out of a session of Critical Role that, that you just can't get from a TV show or, or a book.
0: Um, I think uh, for our listeners, um, I'm really glad you didn't mention two things. Um, I'm glad you didn't mention... The Big Bang Theory. I'm, I'm really happy with that. Um, nope. and, oh boy! <laughs> and se- so I've alienated half my audience. And se- um, second thing I'm really happy about is that you didn't use the word transcendent anyway in that conversation. <laughs> so you didn't sound like a a manic cult leader. Um, That's good. Trying to sell us on a new idea, but uh, <laughs> um, there's something you mentioned there that I'm I'm interested in to to pick up on um, is that you said that uh reading and and just kind of role playing uh, occupies a similar space in the imagination um because all the work is done in your head. um mm-hmm. and uh, i was I was listening it was, it was weird we were talking about this where uh, I was just reading um about Lovecraft in that way. And people mm. were saying that the magic of his writing is that it's writing and it's prose on the page and that it doesn't translate well into other mediums because it's designed to be read and to maybe mm. be read aloud. Um, mm-hmm. But when you actually put it on the on a screen and, and you realize it's just an octopus, man, it's like, ah, <laughs> uh, the, the <laughs> connection's not as as terrifying as when, you know, Lovecraft's raving about something um, and getting frightened about architecture. Um, Right, right. (laughs) But yeah, and and that's something that you're completely right. And that's something that I've noticed as well is that role-playing games have that kind of collective, and and you mentioned Twitch and YouTube, um, they seem to have this collective imagination, right? Because everyone's tuning into this show and and everybody's got their own version of what this show is in their head and it's perfect for them, right? Um, Yes. So the visual representation isn't like, ah, I don't think that's what... This situation would look like, or, or or something like that. That you that you might have, like, say, in an adaptation of fiction to to um to screen. Um. Mm-hmm. So we're coming to the end of this, and I really want to thank you, John, for, for coming on to the show. It's um I've had a blast talking about this. Um, Me too. And I hope our audience has enjoyed this. If um if you're not sure about pen and paper games, you think it's a bit nerdy, or you think yeah. I'd- don't really want to do a silly voice or something like that. I trust me. Um, it's an incredibly enjoyable experience, especially for writers. I know a lot of the majority of our audience, uh, uh, come from fiction, um, writing and such. This is something you should have, um, in your repertoire to be able to to think like this. Um, and yeah, I I think it's a great, it's a great fun experience. And I'll continue to do it myself. Um, so, John, tell us where we can uh, get Blades and um, what you've got coming up.
1: Sure. Uh, you can get Blades in the Dark uh, two ways. Uh, my publisher is called Evil Hat. And if you go to evilhat.com, uh, they have a web store there where you can buy the book. And they have a, a great little program which they call Bits and Mortar, which is uh, if, you, if you buy the book from them on the website, you get the PDF uh, for free. Uh, so you get the digital and the physical uh, together. And if for some reason uh, you're in one of the few remaining cities that has a game store uh, that sells role playing games, um, you can go to your game store and buy the book from your local game store and then also then get the PDF from the Evil Hat site for free as well. Uh, so they, they're they great in in supporting both the, the retail side and the digital side. Um, or you can go to RPG, which is D-R-I-V-E-T-H-R-U-RPG. Uh, and that's where you can get the just the digital version version of Blades, uh, just the PDF, uh, which comes with a bunch of maps and, and character sheets and all the stuff you need to play. Um, and if you want to check out some free games, uh, I have a website called 17design.com, all spelled out, uh, and all my free RPGs are there. Uh, I have a game called Lady Blackbird, which is uh, kind of a game for, for novices uh, and for veterans alike. Um, if you have a friend who is into gaming, you can print out Lady Blackbird for free and hand it to them and say, make this happen for us. Show us what gaming is all about. Um, And say it's a small, small commitment. Uh, You don't have to pay for it. (laughs) Fair Uh, enough. And where can
0: people find you, John, on social media links?
1: Uh, On Twitter, I'm John underscore Harper, J-O-H-N underscore H-A-R-P-E-R. Uh, and Twitter is the main thing I use I'm, I use G for my uh, like game forum and stuff like that but if you want to reach out to me on social media, Twitter is the way to go
0: Fantastic, well John um, I would love to keep talking uh, we, we didn't cover a couple topics that I wanted to get to but we're running out of time, I wanted to ask you about <laughs> the Kickstarter process and all of that and uh, but that's yeah. a whole other conversation I feel It um, is, it is. <laughs> Fantastic, well thank you very much John for coming on um, and we'd love to have you back
1: at some stage in the future. Uh, thank you so much. I would love to come back. That was great.
0: All right, fantastic. And thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. As always, you can find all our uh, content on our website, um, the pen of, uh, themorningbell.com.au. I nearly set my own personal website. You know, self-promotion. That's just how it is. Um, and our Twitter is the underscore morningbell. bell. Um, you'll be listening to this episode, so I don't really need to tell you when this is coming out. Um, but I hope you've enjoyed your time with us. Thank you very much, and we'll see you on the next episode.